I'm 63. And so, you know, I don't believe in, in going, oh, I'm young inside or anything like that. This is 63 and I love it. Hello and welcome to the Never Too Old podcast. I'm your host, Arthur Vibert, and I talk to people who are 15 older about what it takes to do old age right. Today, I'll be talking with Cindy Gallup, who says of herself, I like to blow shit up. I'm the Michael Bay of business. Please join us for a wide-ranging conversation about aging, creativity, sexuality, and her startup, Make Love Not Porn. It's really wonderful to have you here today, Cindy. Terrific. Thrilled to be here. I was doing my due diligence and uh, trying to see as many of your interviews as possible and uh, reading various articles and all the rest of that. And uh, I was struck by how much of it there is. I mean, it's just an enormous amount of material. (laughs) And uh, one of the popular tropes about aging is that, you know, we slow down as we get older. And I wanted to ask you how that was going for you. Oh, my God, no, absolutely not. I mean, you know, I guess what I would say is that we certainly slow down in terms of having a much better sense of this age of what is worth our time and trouble and effort. But otherwise, you know, absolutely not. And in fact, honestly, Arthur, that's a massive misnomer because, you know, I always remember years ago, I worked for a while as a consultant on retainer to the Japanese advertising agency Hakahodo. And, and so I spent quite a bit of time in Tokyo working with them there. And I remember that I was, there for, I was there for a week. And one night I went out to dinner at a sushi restaurant with all of my colleagues, all of whom were Japanese, including a woman who was a senior executive creative director at Hakahodo. And that is staggeringly unusual. So that gives you some idea of how bloody brilliant she must have been. And anyway, over the course of dinner... She revealed that in her youth, she had been apprenticed to a very famous Japanese soothsayer, fortune teller kind of figure, a man. And it had only been for six months, so it was a relatively short apprenticeship. But in the course of that, he had taught her to read palms. And she learned to read palms in, I think, three areas. You know, one's life, one's health, one's romantic life, something along those lines. Anyway, so then we were on the sushi restaurant. We've all had a ton of sake. We're all tanked. We're all going, read me, read me. And so she read all our palms. And obviously in the case of everybody else, she was reading in Japanese. In my case, part of the charm of this is that her English is not very good. And so she looked at my palm and she said to me, you are only halfway. And I was 49 at the time. And I bloody loved that because that was exactly how I felt I was only halfway. And so I think people really lose sight of the fact that, you know, when you hit 50, you have as long to live again as you've had up until this point. What are you going to do with that? So I've got a ton of stuff I want to make happen. So no, I'm not slowing down in any way whatsoever. I didn't think so, but I just wanted to make sure. Uh, (laughs) um, And it's interesting to me because I, I know a little bit about you because we met briefly at the 3% conference last or a couple of years ago. But, you know, I follow you on Instagram and and it always amazes me because in addition to all those other things we've mentioned a little bit of, you have a very active social life as well. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to see you're in London or you're in New York or you're somewhere in Asia or wherever else and, uh, and always seems to be enjoying all that. So it seems that it's not all work. There seems to be plenty of play in there as well. 
Monsieur. Actually, do you know, Arthur, it is all work. Okay. <laughs> and, and the reason I say that is because, so, so my travel is, I have to support myself alongside my startup, Make Love Not Porn. So I do paid public speaking. And so a lot of travel you would have seen me on has to do with that. Otherwise, you know, I try and go back to London very regularly because my 90-year-old mother lives there. And when <laughs> somebody's that age, you don't know how long they're going to be around. And so I use my air miles and I try and go back to London once every four to six weeks. But while I'm there, I'm working remotely from London. So, you know, that's also not, not play. And, you know, really, I, I wouldn't say that I have leisure time per se, but the great thing about being an entrepreneur working for yourself is that you could manage your schedule any way you want. The art of doing nothing is massively underrated. And, and so what I love about working weekends is that, you know, I can, I can work whenever I want to. I can take a nap. I can do some more work. I can read a book. You know, to just integrating work into my life in a way that allows for management of relaxation around it I find very powerful at being a total de-stressor. And so, you know, to some extent I'm always working, but I'm always working on my own time. And that makes an enormous difference. Yes, I love that. It reminds me of a quote from Aaron Sorkin who said, you call it procrastinating, I call it thinking, which is that creative process that looks a lot like doing nothing or daydreaming or whatever else, but it's key to being able to think creatively and to actually bring things out of the ether and make them whole. At the moment, I see so many people who are consumed with filling up every single second of their waking hours with entertainment or something that distracts. And from everything I've read and experienced personally, it's so important to leave that extra space for just free thinking, daydreaming, allowing thoughts, new ideas to bubble up and, and all that. Do you, do you have any sense of how that affects, have you noticed that perhaps in others or, or is, what are your feelings about well, that? Well, you know, from my perspective, Arthur, I am somebody who is a true solitary. I'm extremely fond of my own company. And so ironically, I absolutely adored lockdown during the pandemic because my idea of total happiness has always been to be in my apartment on my own with nowhere to go and no one to see. And in lockdown, I got to do that every single day. It was bliss. <laughs> what I find interesting is I'm very much the same. And I felt the same way about a lockdown for a while. Towards the end, I felt like, eh, I, I, I like to see humans occasionally. <laughs> but I, I, very much, I very much hear that. I'm 69, 70 this year. And it's one of those things where I'm actually anticipating. I look forward to it. You know, it's like I'm done with the 60s. I just want to say I'm 70 now so I can just be Excellent. there. Excellent. <laughs> but it, it, it's always amusing to me. I, one of my very best friends who I've known my entire life because he was my father's best friend is 96 now. And he laughs when I call myself old. He says, I wish I was 70 again. <laughs> it's just, okay, it's all meta perspective. You know, from our side, okay, yeah, looks, we look, feel, look, I don't know. Don't, I don't feel old. I don't think you do either. But, you know, to others, we can look that way. And, and yet, nope, just carrying on, doing as great we can. No, no, honestly, Arthur, I don't even think about it like that. You know, I feel 63. I feel my age. And... 
when anybody says to me, oh, wow, 63 Sydney, you look amazing. I don't know, no, no, this is what 63 looks like. I like yes, that. yes, I am old in the literal sense of the word because I feel as I am. I'm 63. And so, you know, I don't believe in, in going, oh, I'm young inside or anything like that. This is 63 and I love it. <laughs> One of the things that really interests me is that whole notion of being young inside and so on. And I, I do actually think that there is an aspect or some aspects of youth that are worth maintaining. And I think those are things like creativity, wonder, sense of wonder, sense of awe, curiosity, I think. Why, really um, why do you think none of those things are old, Arthur? Because they're all the things we all do naturally when we're young. And it's not that I think, I, I, I do think we still do, I still do all those things. And all the people who I admire who are my age or older still do those things. And those are the things I think that keep them engaged and part of life and all that. But I think for a lot of people, they see that kind of behavior as being childish. And, and yet, I think that's one of the, those are some of the key elements to being successful, both in terms of your day-to-day -day living and in how you age. Well, I was going to say, you know, I, I completely disagree because I think the older I get, the more creative I get because my brain and my mind have so much more to draw on in terms of applying creativity and creating solutions and creating answers and creating strategies. And so I just think that the older you get, the more creative you are. Because, because you just have so much more to draw on. Then, you know, I think the older you get, the more able you are to express curiosity and awe. Because when you're younger, there's, there's a lot of social conditioning and pressure, which younger people may not be aware of, to appear blasé, to be cool, laid back. Oh, yeah, no, that doesn't impress me. You know, and... At this age when we don't give a shit, I just absolutely react to anything. I go, oh my God, that's incredible. Or I had no idea about that. That's amazing. Or, you know, and also, you know, when you're younger, for the same reason, quite often, you don't ask questions. You are terrified of appearing naive. You are terrified of appearing ill-informed. You're terrified of appearing stupid. And again, at this age, we don't give a shit. And so I will ask questions. I'll be curious about everything because I don't care what people think of me for asking questions. So I think it's absolutely the inversion of what you talked about, Arthur. It's the other way around. The older we get, the more creative we are, the more we're able to be truly curious, the more we're able to spontaneously express awe and amazement. All of that only increases, not decreases. Is I, I think we're actually, as my wife likes to say, in furious agreement. I'm with you. I, I probably didn't articulate myself properly earlier, but, uh, but, uh, but I agree. I think those things are all very, very much true. And uh, I think that's one of the great joys of getting older is just not having to worry about what other people think about you. you know, because what you realize at a certain point is there are always people who are going to love you no matter what. And there are some people who no matter what are going to not like you at all. And most people aren't going to think about you very much. So it, it's like, that's just how it is. I'm just going to be me because it doesn't matter anyway. There's still going to be people that don't like me and people who do. And I, what, one of the things that I found really interesting and I was doing some research a while back was this whole notion of creativity 
the idea is that when you're younger, supposedly, you have what they call fluid creativity, which is the ability to draw from all different kinds of places and, you know, make connections in ways that would not happen in normal life, I guess. But as you get older, you have what's called crystallized creativity, which means you're just drawing on your life experience and nothing new is entering into the equation. And I, I was curious about that because in my own experience, I found that to be totally ridiculous. Yeah, no, uh, no. I mean, I don't recognize that at all. No, no. And I, so I looked it up to see when that came up about, that, that theory, and it was sometime in the 50s. I was like, has no one thought about this since? Have we yeah. just been receiving this? Is, is this received wisdom? And I found that incredibly frustrating. So I, I feel like that needs to be revisited because especially as people are aging better and living longer and the expectations for so many of us are not what they once were, which is you reach a certain point and then you go sit in the corner and gradually get older until you die and people ignore you. But now older people are they're vibrant, they're active, they're making things happen, they're engaged, they're leading in, in, in many good ways and Maybe many not go so good ways, but <laughs> we have to work on that. And so it seems like that, that whole trope needs to change. And I think a lot of my goal here, specifically with this podcast, is to do just that. One of the other things I wanted to talk about with you is another old age trope, which is that once you reach a certain age, your sexuality vanishes, and, and that's the end of it. And you know, so you essentially become asexual. And I'm curious to know from your perspective personally or sort of in a more global sense what your take is on that. Well, obviously, that's a total load of bollocks. So, you know, I find the older I get, the hornier I get, you know, and that's been the case for quite a while. And also, equally obviously, you know, my business, Make Love Not Porn, exists to celebrate the full glorious spectrum of human sexuality. And boy, oh boy, you know, do we ever have social sex videos and Make Love Not Porn stars on Make Love Not Porn who demonstrate that you can have a bloody amazing sex life right up, literally, actually, until, until the day you die. So we have hmm. a ton of older members. We have a ton of older Make Love Not Porn stars. Our members and our Make Love Not Porn stars range in age from 18 to 80, literally. And, you know, our older members tell us how happy they are that, that we are celebrating Make Older Love Not Porn. You know, we get wonderful emails. You know, we got an email from a gentleman who is, I think his wife are in their 70s. They've been married for God knows how many years. They have a phenomenal sex life. They massively turn each other on. You know, to, I mean, it was just the most wonderful email because he was just so thrilled to find Make Love Not Porn and to find that we were all about that and celebrated that. So, no, it's, you know, first of all, it's absolute nonsense that that's the case. And secondly, you know, as the only real-world sex counterpoint and complement to porn. You know, the way I always put it is, if porn is the Hollywood blockbuster movie, Make Love Not Porn is the badly needed documentary. You know, what we also have are, we have a number of Make Love Not Porn stars who are dealing with conditions that emerge as you get older. So, for example, we have Make Love Not Porn stars going through menopause, and, you know, they share their real-world sex videos and they talk very honestly about, you know, things that come up because of menopause that they have to deal with, their partners have to deal with. But what you get to see is how wonderfully you can make accommodations for those in the real world and have a fantastic sex life regardless. So, so no, that, that's a complete and total myth. And, 
It's one of many myths about sex in the real world that make Love Not Porn is out to explode. That's great. And of course, I had to become a member and check out Make Love Not Porn when I was going to talk to you. Uh, <laughs> so, and I have to say that it's, it, it's amazing. You know, it, it's the, the first you. thing you notice is, is, you know, a complete and total lack of what I like to call balloon bodies. These people look like they've been inflated and, mm. and then polished to a high gloss. Mm. It's like, <laughs> what, what is that? <laughs> real bodies, real people yeah. doing yeah. real things yeah. and enjoying yeah. it. And, and, yeah. you know, and the joy shows through. Yeah. And, and actually, Arthur, the really important thing, too, is because this is such a simple fact. And it's tragic that popular culture, our industry included, is, get, is getting in the way of it, is... You know, so you've, as you observed, you know, at Make Love at Porn, we celebrate real world everything. Real world bodies, real world hair, real world penis size, real world breast size, real world vulvas. And the reason that's critically important is because you can talk body positivity all you like. You can preach self-love until you're blue in the face. But at the end of the day, nothing makes us feel great about our own bodies like seeing people who, to your point, are no one's idea of aspirational body types getting turned on by each other, desiring each other, having an amazing time in bed. And it's so important because in a world where every message popular culture sends us, tells us, you are not hot, you are not sexual, you're not desirable, unless you are this skinny, six-pack abs, look like this. You know, our members write to us and say, you made me feel better about my own body. You know, one woman left a wonderful comment on a video where it was of a Make Love Not Porn star couple, the woman's large, and you know, this woman left a comment saying, it is so empowering to see a woman of my body type being sexual. Thank you for this gift. And it reminds me of some years ago, the start in the UK, now wildly popular all around the world, the TV show Love Island, this is in the UK, it announced the lineup for its next season. And it was instantly criticised for the lack of diversity in, in the cast, both the lack of body diversity and the lack of racial ethnic diversity. So the producer was interviewed about this, and he made the enormous mistake of saying, well, well, we have to cast what people found attractive. So the entire internet came down his head, including me, the Daily Mail published my tweet in a, in a piece that wrote about all of this because I tweeted back at him and I said, walk through any park in any big city anywhere around the world in summer and look at the couples sitting on the grass, holding hands, kissing, and you will see what people really find attractive in the real world. And as I say, Arthur, it's enormously ironic because... This, this truth is around us every day. Walk down any street here in New York City where I live, but any, anywhere else, look at the couples. You will see what people really find attractive, fall madly in love with, want to have sex with in the real world. What makes you hot is you. What your romantic partner connects with is you. And then your body is hot as hell just by virtue of being yours. That is a fundamental fact of human existence. And yet, you know, the myth that populist culture has, you know, woven around this still obscures people's vision from that fundamental truth that is all around us every single day. What makes you hot is you. I love that. That's wonderful. And that's such a great insight as well. 
you know, it runs completely counter to what the world of media would have us believe in all its various different forms. But it's it's true. <laughs> and I think it's another great reason why it's so important to, you know, take a few holidays from all that media from time to time. One of the things I also tell my students a lot is you're not going to get inspiration from your device. A device is a tool like any other tool, but you don't use a hammer to saw a board. <laughs> In the same way, you don't use your computer to have ideas. Ooh. It's where you can execute ideas, but it's Ooh. not where you have them. And, you know, I can't, I, I just feel it's so important to stay in touch with the real world, real human Ooh. beings, you know, real places, real things that happen. Because apart from anything else, there's no serendipity without the real world, I find. Mm. You know, it's like those chance meetings. I went to a TED talk a couple of weeks ago and I ran into some people I hadn't seen in 30 years. Just randomly. I had no idea they would be there. And it was just wonderful. That's those mm. wonderful serendipitous moments. And I just, I just feel like we miss out on so much when we spend so much time staring at our devices. And it's... Mm. I, I'm as much guilty as anybody is. I have to force myself not to. And it, it, it's challenging sometimes. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious about, tell me a little bit more about Make Love Not Porn, because I know that there have been some challenges for you in terms of getting the kind of funding that you need in order to really allow it to take off, in addition to which you've had difficulties with advertising and a, a lot of other things along those lines. And I'm, I, I'm wondering is, do you think it's because of the nature of the business? Is it because you're female? Is it because you're older? Any of those things? Or what's your take on that? Well, you know, theoretically, Arthur, I represent the triple whammy of unfundability. I'm female, I'm older, I have a sex tech venture. And by the way, strictly speaking, I'm the quadruple whammy of unfundability because I'm also a woman of color. I'm half Chinese, but I don't yes. include that because I'm white passing. So that does not come into play, to, to be frank. But, uh, you know, what I think is interesting is because I've brought to my own business everything I've learned in 38 years of working in brand building, marketing, advertising. So, first of all, this is my fundamental challenge finding investors. And it's why I've developed, as you do in our industry, my own unique strategy to, to find those investors. So, my challenge is that I know that my investors are out there and that there are a ton of them. And by the way, there are a ton of them in every single country in the world. They are impossible to find by the conventional means because they all have one thing in common. Your willingness to fund Make Love Not Porn is entirely a function of your personal sexual journey. It is a function of your personal lens on sex and sexuality that's been shaped by your own experience of it. And I have no way to research and target for that. Especially because sex is the one area where you cannot tell from the outside what anybody thinks on the inside. The people who look like they would totally get it, don't. The people who look like complete prudes do. And so my strategy very deliberately has been to put what I'm doing out there all the time. I promote Make Love Not Porn and the fact I'm raising funding across all my social channels. I accept every media interview I'm invited to do. I go on every single podcast I'm asked to because 
I have to make synaptic connections happen that will attract those investors to me. Now, theoretically, this is a very long, slow, painful, and highly inefficient process. The good news is it works, and the even better news is that in the past year, it's been working more and more. I am frankly gobsmacked at the amount of incoming investor interest I have on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is my single biggest investor lead generator. Investors reach out to me out of the blue going, I see you're raising funding. I'd like to talk. You know, I'm intrigued. Tell me more. And so I am very heartened by this. Uh, plus, by the way, for the past 14 years, I've parallel path two things. I've worked to build Make Love Not Porn, and I've worked to change the business and cultural context around it. Because when you have a truly world-changing startup, you have to change the world to fit it, not the other way around. And all I'm doing is what we've all been trained to do for our clients, change the playing field. You know, don't just level it, change it. So 14 years later, all of that work is paying off. You know, I'm, I'm absolutely finding investors who want to fund me, which is fantastic. So I'm very optimistic that I will be able to raise the serious round of funding I'm looking for. And I'm also seeing far more acceptance for Make Love Not Porn and what I'm doing because I have helped to drive that. So, you know, it, it really is like any other problem that we solve on behalf of our clients. All it takes is extremely ingenious strategy and highly creative execution. Which should be easily accessible to you. <laughs> what really interests me is that when I look at the history of porn, because I, I remember way back when I was probably 18 years old, you had to go to movie theaters and, you know, someone took me to see Deep Throat. Oh my God. And, uh, you know, and then, of course, there was the VHS revolution and all this kind of thing. So the, the porn industry has been what it's been for a very long time. And, uh, but what's, I found kind of interesting is that in the, probably in the last 20 years or so, it seems to have, I don't know if mainstream is the right word, but it seems to become a lot more accessible. People seem a lot more willing to acknowledge that they watch it. People who you wouldn't expect to say they watch it. And I think a lot of it's younger people, they talk about it. But what I love about what you're doing is that you're taking this thing which people, which has been around for so long that it just seems like, well, that's just how it is, and, and turning it on its ear and saying, that's not how it is. You know, and, and I, I love your, you know, it's the blockbuster versus the, the much needed documentary. And, and I, I think it's a wonderful way of, of, of describing it because that, that makes so much sense. And we all know how compelling a well-made documentary can be sometime later. You know, you go to see a Hollywood blockbuster and it's fun while you're doing it. And then after that, you forget about it completely. A great documentary to think about for years. And, you know, I, I, I like that analogy a lot because I feel like it's, it makes a lot of sense in this context. Well, what, what I would just say, Arthur, because, you know, a lot of people, it's, it's emblematic of how fucked up as a society we are about sex. That there's a tendency to go, oh, people having sex with video must be porn. Okay. And so I've had for 14 years to be crystal clear about the fact that I am creating a whole new category, one that has never, ever previously existed, social sex. Because I identified through my direct personal experience having sex with younger men that when we don't talk about sex openly and honestly in the real world, porn becomes sex education by default in not a good way. And so I set out to make it easy for every single person in the world to talk openly and honestly about sex. And in order to do that, 
I decided very simply, and again, as you know, in our industry, the best solutions are the simplest ones. I decided very simply to take every dynamic in social media and apply it to this one area of universal human experience that no other social network platform will allow. And so all we're doing is we're socializing sex. But when we do that, that has an extraordinary impact because as a unique business, Make Love Not Porn has an utterly unique capability. We have the power to change people's sexual attitudes and behavior for the better in a way that nothing else can. And so we are not simply something you watch. We are something that transforms you, your relationships, your life, your worldview on sex. And that is what, because of our lack of funding to date, you know, the world has not fully understood. It will when I can raise the funding to do what I want to do. But, you know, a couple of indications of the scale of the opportunity. Infuriatingly, Make Love Not Porn is banned from advertising anywhere. We cannot advertise on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, TikTok, YouTube, Google, etc. It's especially frustrating that we are banned from doing paid search on Google. Because every day, all around the world, people search Make Love Not Porn without knowing that we exist. And what I mean by that is the top organic search terms that drive traffic to us are Make Love, Not Porn, Real Sex Not Porn, Video Sexo Na Porno, Make Love Not Porn, where they don't know there's a company called that. One young man told me that he found us when he Googled porn that is not porn. He was so fed up with everything out there, wanted something different, had no idea what to look for. When you Google porn that is not porn, you find make love not porn. That is how much the world wants us and needs us and knows it needs us. Because we answer the question that everybody has always asked, what is everybody else really doing in bed? And the other indicator of the scale of the opportunity is that every year, Pornhub, the biggest porn site on the internet, publishes a year in review where it uses its massive trove of data to identify what is trending across its site. This year, for their year in review 2022, they identified the number one trend across their gigantic platform as what they call reality. People are looking for real. And when they published that report, I shared it across all my social channels, I said, what all those people are looking for, although they don't know it yet, is make love, not porn. That's the scale of the opportunity. That's great. What a great insight to discover that through your, I don't know if a competitor is the right word, but because you're not really in the same business. <laughs> no, no, we are. That's why our tagline is we are pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. Yeah. We, we don't compete with porn. We are the only real-world counterpoint and complement to it. People like watching movies. People like watching documentaries. Sometimes in the mood for a movie, sometimes in the mood for a documentary. We complement and counterpoint. We don't compete. That's great. That's great. It's, it's, I think one of the things I love about this is that I can see how much thought and, and philosophizing, frankly, has gone into your perspective on this and how you think about it and where it stands in relationship to other sexually related oriented media products and so on. So I think that it, it, it's very clear that there's a very obvious differentiation between what you're doing and what else is going on out there. And 
I, you know, I, I believe in it from what I've seen of it so far. And also knowing your energy and, and determination behind the whole thing. As far as I'm concerned, Cindy, you're a force of nature. Things seem to happen around you. And I, I, I love to see it. I, I, t I talk about you with my students actually quite a bit. Uh, I had an experience this last quarter where I had a, I had a bunch of different students and it, they range, they're, you know, they tend to be in their 20s. But there was one young woman who was pregnant and uh, towards the end of the class, she actually logged into the class from her hospital bed because her water had broken, but she wanted to present her project. Oh my and, God. And, and she did, and the project was great. She did it all by herself and it was really well thought out. It was brilliantly considered and, and, uh, and she was presenting it from <laughs> while she was in labor. And, and I wow, thought to myself- well done her. I know, and I, and I told her that too in the evaluation. I said, you're my hero. I said, I, you can't imagine how much whining I get from people. Oh, you know, I couldn't do this because, you know, it's very, variations on, you know, the dog ate my homework. And, and here you are <laughs> pulling everybody else out of the water. And I'll be honest with you, Cindy, you know, I, I, there's a lot of talented people and that I see coming through. But, but I've found that in recent years, the women have been far outshining the men. And why that should be, I don't know. I don't have an answer for it, but I do love to see it. And I, it's not just, it's all kinds of women as well. Women of, I, I have African-American women. I have women from South America and Central America. And they're all determined, focused, very creative. And, you know, it gives me actually great hope for the industry because, you know, we've both talked about ageism and advertising and all that. And I feel like it definitely needs a new shot of vigor, right. <laughs> for um, so one of Arthur, a better word. So Arthur, let me tell you why that does not give me new hope for our industry, okay? Okay. Yep. Because, you know, and, and by the way, I've observed I'm the only one vocalizing what I'm about to say to you, because at this age, doing what I do, which is I still have one foot in our industry, and I, and I, you know, I sit, you know, I'm one of the Ad Council's three campaign review chairs. I, I do a ton of stuff still. But I also have been a tech entrepreneur for many years. And here's the thing that I find enormously frustrating. At the top of our industry is, as you know, a closed loop of white guys talking to white guys about other white guys, as I've been saying for decades. Those white guys have made an absolute goddamn fucking shit ton of money out of our industry. And they are not reinvesting it back in. And I say that because every other industry does that. In Silicon Valley, which again is dominated by a closed loop of white guys talking to white guys about other white guys, when those white guys, you know, take the hundreds of millions of dollars of funding lavished on them by white bro VCs and they build their unicorns and they exit for billions of dollars, they use some of that money to fund the younger founders in that same industry. The PayPal mafia funded the fuck out of fintech. Okay, They, they actively realize the opportunity. They know there are always younger people coming up who have the ability to reinvent the future in the same way they did and they fund them. That happens in our clients' industries. So in, you know, consumer packaged goods, in the food and beverage industries, 
Coca-Cola, Pepsi, they all have venture arms and they fund the fuck out of food and beverage innovation. Okay? They made a shit ton of money doing what they do and they take that money and they reinvest it into the younger people coming up within that industry with new ideas about how to reinvent the future. Okay? That is why only 10% of all advertising agencies are women-owned. And I, I know some brilliant female agency founders. The white men at the top with all the money are not falling over themselves to fund the future of our industry. I find it astonishing. Oh, by the way, they are absolutely funding Silicon Valley because that's cool. They will absolutely take the millions and billions they've made out of advertising and they will go and fund white tech bros because that makes them feel cool and they can hang out with the VCs and whatever. They are not funding the future of our industry. And I find that appalling. I agree. And I, I guess my hope is that what I do see is that the advertising industry is definitely not what it was when I was in it. And that's fine. <laughs> but in terms of the amount of money that actually trickles down to the people working in it, I tell my students, your career in advertising will probably be over when you hit 40. You know, you may be able to get past that. You can freelance beyond oh, that. No, 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 Arthur. Okay, okay. Here's what you say to your students, okay? Stop okay. doing that. Okay, so, so you, <laughs> you need to say to your students what I am saying to the women and men in our industry that I coach as part of my personal coaching practice. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I coach people from all industries. And honestly, I say this to people from every industry. So what I tell them, especially, by the way, anybody who is not a white man, because what's operating in our industry is what's operating in every industry, which is the white male lens. And I go, the opportunity is huge right now for any lens that is not white and male. So take a long, hard look around our industry and identify what you think is missing. That should be there. What you would love to be able to use in our industry that you can't because nobody's done that what you think you could uniquely bring to our table that answer would benefit from, that nobody else has, and then start that. And there are two reasons why I recommend this. The first is, I say to each of those people, I want you to start your own industry. And when I say that, what I mean is start your own business, but I deliberately articulate it like that. I want you to start your own industry because when you start your own business, you can design that business to work any way you want. You can design in the company culture you want to thrive in. You can design in the work-life balance that you want to have. You can design a business model around how you would like to make money. And when you do all that, you are starting the industry we all want to live and work in. And then the second reason I tell them to do that is because that closed loop of white guys talking to white guys about other white guys cannot innovate because homogeneity is the opposite of creativity but they sure as hell can buy innovation and so i say to everyone who is not a white man start your own industry and when you start the future of our industry through the diverse lens when you start that massively innovative disruptive thing that is currently missing from our industry all you have to do is operate it reasonably successfully for a relatively short period of time, and then giant holding companies will buy it from you for an absolute goddamn fucking shit ton of money. And that is the quickest path to wealth creation in our industry. 
Thank you for that. I really appreciate that, Cindy. And I will, I, I do say you could start your own agency, but I think what I'll do instead is show them. I won't say it myself. I will show them what you just said and, and let you say it to them because I think that's very inspirational. And I think there's a lot of them who would definitely appreciate that. So thank you for that. And, and by the way, when you do that, Arthur, show them also theygotacquired.com. Okay. So this is a fantastic new resource. It's just a year old. It was started by Alexis Grant last year because she wanted to celebrate and encourage and advise on exits that are not the Silicon Valley, you know, unicorn, billion dollar, whatever. She started theygotacquired.com to be a media platform and a resource center for business exits along a spectrum ranging from $100,000 to $50 million. The point being, at every point along that spectrum is life-changing money for founders. And so tell your students, go to theygotacquired.com, sign up for her weekly newsletter, because the case studies are fascinating. You know, one man started a design blog, one man enterprise, and sold it to a tech company for $1 million. Okay, Anything anybody starts, somewhere somebody sees enormous value in acquiring. Same thing in our industry. So tell your students to start planning for success right now. Sign up at theygotacquired.com. You will see the extraordinary range of things that people started that had value for somebody else. And the same absolutely applies in our industry. Wonderful. Thank you for that resource as well. So those are great things. I'm going to definitely make sure that they get passed around a lot because I think they're important. So I appreciate that. Well, I think that that's actually everything I want from you today. I may want more from you another time, but we'll, we'll talk another time, I'm sure. But in the meantime, Cindy, thank you so much. Appreciate your insights, your honesty, and your, your willingness to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, I was going to say thank you, Arthur. And, you know, to our audience, if you've enjoyed what I've had to say, then please do what Arthur did. Go to makelovenotporn.tv, sign up and subscribe. It's free to sign up. It's only $10 a month to subscribe, so it's eminently affordable. And spread the word so that our industry helps support one of its own. Cindy, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. And uh, we'll talk again soon. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining me today on the Never Too Old podcast. You can find out more about today's guest at her site, cindygallop.com, or at her startup, makelovenotporn.tv. The most interesting thing about it was the revelation that I thought I loved advertising, and I thought that was the be-all and end-all. But the change of career at that point in my life was invigorating, it was really exciting. And and I thought, well, why didn't I do something like this earlier? Because just the, the, the change of perspective and, and, and learning new skills was um, was really a great thing. And, and uh, so it was, it was, I learned a lot about myself just through, through that transition. Please check out the next podcast in the series where I talk to Fred Siegel about his journey from successful advertising writer to successful photographer.